Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Foreign and Domestic Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Will. And today we're going to be talking about, um, first, the Venezuela situation um, regarding the uh, failed coup attempt. Um, We have new information regarding that um, because the last episode, uh, we didn't really have much information. Now a lot of it has come out. And uh, we'll also be discussing on possible ways to reopen America um, following the coronavirus. Yeah, so we we didn't, um, we kind of took that as a one-off thing. Uh, just kind of a, a silly story mm-hmm. uh, last week, but um, looking into it a little bit more, we realized uh, <laughs> how just in- incredibly insane this whole saga is. Oh, yeah. So this was not a um, fiction orchestrated by uh, Maduro's government. There were actually um, mercenaries who, American mercenaries who tried to overthrow the maduro government (laughs) yeah and And, like the whole saga of how it it went down is pretty interesting it it stems from jordan goudreau who's um a middle-aged uh ex-special forces uh, veteran uh and he he runs this security firm in florida silver corp Um, usa yeah Except he he pronounces it Silver Core like it's the Marine Corps. Oh God! <laughs> but like it's Corp is an incorporation. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean that just goes to the whole his whole persona, his whole aesthetic, yeah. which is part of the craziness of of the whole thing. I mean, um. So basically how this started was in um, 2019, I believe, um, there were some talks in Miami between Goudreau's uh, firm and representatives of Juan Guaido, who is the rightful president of Venezuela. And I mean, yeah. For, for, for context, for context, basically, Venezuela has two presidents at the moment. Um, yeah. So we have Nicolas Maduro, who is the, I guess, the government, if if that makes any sense. He was the government I mean, before all of this. He is, like, the president. Yeah, he is, like, he's the, uh, I, I dare say legitimate, but, I, you know, like, yeah, I mean, words. He's, but he's, he's basically, the, he was the original guy. And then, yeah. um, because of this he, whole he crisis, still controls the government. yeah, he he has control over the armed forces and a lot of government institutions. And then the other guy, Juan Guaido, he is basically the opposition, and he sort of declared himself to be the president um, of like a sort of interim government. So there's basically two parliaments, and it's a whole mess. And so Juan Guaido is the guy who's trying to get rid of Nicolas Maduro. And and this has been, I mean. Like, the vast majority of, like, respectable political figures in the U.S. support Guaido, but there's been some, like, left-wing-ish weirdness on yeah. that. The, um, the, an- so, the anti-interventionist camp. Yeah, if you're inclined to think that Guaido is probably this, like, right-wing, crazy, like, yeah. person, it, it should be noted that he was actually asked in an interview about... AOC, and he said, yeah, I looked at 
her policies. That doesn't seem that crazy. So, like, he's not, like, this right-wing crazy person. Like, no, he's quite he's left He's just, like, he, he's a socialist, mm-hmm. but, like, believes in democracy and freedom, which Maduro does not. Yeah. So, um, but basically, Jordan Gaudreau was, you know, discussing with some of the representatives of Guaido's government, and it hadn't been, like, explicitly authorized by Guaido, to my understanding. Um, Guaido had said everything is on the table. Uh, so they, they were discussing this, and Gaudreau made certain promises. He claimed he had a force of 800 men that could extract Maduro, which, <laughs> like... I mean, that's, that yeah. doesn't pass the smell test, right? Yeah. Like, the the whole, like, goal was basically capture Maduro and then the whole government and kick him out of the country. Yeah, but, like, as these things so often do, this whole, these discussions went south. There were some issues with, you know, money transfer. Um, Goudreau was demanding... 1.5 million dollars immediately um they said no we'll give you fifty thousand dollars but eventually it, it just sort of fell apart um and then so this is where Gaudreau seems to like nod to some connection to washington to i mean ostensibly the trump administration but i i don't buy that like that really was the case and i'll i'll go into a little bit more about what i think is possible mm-hmm. and isn't possible there so goudreau said um washington is fully aware of your direct participation in the project and i don't want them to lose faith essentially like seeming to threaten that he could get the u.s to withdraw support from guaido because they didn't give him, who is not in any way officially connected to the government, $1.5 million. Yeah. But um, basically, after that, there, were, there was more arguing, um, and the, the plot was pretty much dead, or at least the uh, Venezuelan officials, Guaido's people, basically thought it was dead mm. but then Goudreau <laughs> does it anyway <laughs> so like <laughs> I, and and even furthermore he is like tweeting about it like he tweets donald trump about it he tweets this video of himself with this like venezuelan general who's like i guess tangentially related to the opposition but yeah he was um he was part of the venezuelan army and he defected in 2013 yeah and he he was like he was trying to get like venezuelan troops to defect and potentially launch something like this yeah and it's like, there's just billion, um, like, crazy little details here. Like, mm-hmm. apparently, um, they had 
airsoft guns <laughs> with them. Oh god. That's which that's like I, I think they have <laughs> guns too, but um doesn't exactly help you yeah. in uh combat. But basically, like there's been speculation on connection to the US government and I mean Maduro obviously wants like that's the message he wants to broadcast. Like mm-hmm. it is far better for him politically if this is publicly regarded as like an attempt by a, a foreign power to overthrow his government. Although I'm sure actually a lot of Venezuelans would be quite happy about that. Yeah. Um, but it, it helps him garner being, international support. Yeah. That's, that's than, what he, that's what he's more looking for. Cause yeah. his people are all over the place. What he really well, needs yeah. is the support of uh, the international community, and by accusing the U.S. of trying to oust his government illegally, then he gets that support. This is true, but there's also, like, autocrats still have politics to mm-hmm. negotiate, to, like, navigate, so I, I think there is that aspect as well. Um, obviously not to the same extent, but... Yeah. And there, there has been within U.S. politics, some discussion of possible connections to the Trump administration, mm-hmm. which, like, I don't see any way in which this was, like, signed off on by, yeah, like, any high-level national security official. What I could see having happened is, like, some, I don't know, staffer who's one of those, like, who, who thinks he's really important and is, like, not all that looped in, definitely doesn't have anything to do with foreign policy, like, talking to Goudreau or something and being like, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Goudreau taking that as, like, implicit support from the White House. <laughs> like, I, I could see that happening and... That's Trump's fault to the extent that I. it seems that the White House is staffed with many people who, like, you could see being stupid enough to do something like that. Mm. It's not his fault to the extent that he, you know, I think obviously did not sign off on this. Yeah, it, it seems like Goudreau was like, you know what? Let's let's do this. It it seemed like there wasn't any like uh, like real official, I guess like authorization from the U.S. government. It didn't seem like anything of that nature. Like some people are suggesting that um there it was like a reward or whatever Goudreau was after. Um, yeah, I mean there is a bounty yeah. on Maduro. Yeah. And so right. that might have been it or whatever, but if we look at it, if the U.S. was involved, like, directly with supporting this operation, I don't think it would have gone this way. No, it wouldn't It was have. very I mean, poorly planned. So it yeah. was, yeah. Yeah, very poorly planned, very poorly executed, and without any official authorization from the opposition anyways. And, and yeah. It just it just it just was a mess. I I don't see 
the U.S. messing up this badly in in the modern yeah. time. Yeah, I mean, it. there has been some things made of the fact that, like, they provided security at a Trump rally, and that, I think, speaks to some of the, like, tangential connections to the Trump administration that could have, um, um, but... Like, you got to remember, these are this is like a private military company. Yeah, and and actually, and and like their services are, like PMC services are hired by a number of people, just because like someone hires them to do uh, one thing. Just like in the past, it doesn't necessarily mean they're connected to another thing. But no, that's 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 totally true. It it just speaks to like possibly like social connect, like you might be familiar with. Yeah, something. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's the extent to this thing. Like, that's how something like this could have happened, where some idiot says, hey, you should... <laughs> like, they're talking, and this guy wants to sound... Like, like I said earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also... I do want to bring up some of the... Um, interesting endeavors that Gaudreau's... Uh, company silver corp or silver core as he calls it has done in the past um apparently after the parkland shooting he offered a subscription-based service where parents would pay him like like parents collectively at a school would each chip in like i don't know six or seven dollars a month and his firm would have like somebody go there and he, he said they'd be like the the cool shop teacher <laughs> and they'd go over and, and talk to the broody quiet kid to try and figure out if he was gonna like do anything radically like, it was just totally ridiculous thing and then he like compared it to netflix saying that you know if you pay 12 dollars a month for netflix why can't you pay <laughs> Why can't you uh, pay $12 a month for school shooter protection? Yeah. This guy guy is a a little bit crazy. Yeah. And this... This... To get back to sort of how the operation went down, um, there were not 800 men. There were 62. Um, Sadly, eight of them died. Um, Yeah. But... It, it was just incredibly poorly executed. Um, it was one of the worst mercenary coup attempts ever. Like, yeah, I mean, if you look at if you look at like the history of mercenary related coups, so many of them went so much better than this, even the ones that failed. Yeah, like these guys didn't even make it into the country; they landed and lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, like, everybody knew it was happening, apparently, like, yeah. Colombia. Appar- apparently the uh, Maduro government uh, knew about it as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the U.S. sort of knew about it, but, like, they, I, I think the U.S., like, tried to discourage it, but maybe didn't, I, I don't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> they say they were against it, um. I'm not sure what action was taken to try and stop it, but... 
Yeah. It's just this really bizarre story that in, <laughs> it's just almost like this is something that we would do for like political oddities. You know? mm-hmm. But it's completely real. So Yeah. I mean like still we don't have all the information, but there, we have a lot more than we had previously and like the more this the more we learn about Goudreau, his company, and like this whole event, that I think the more interesting it'll end up becoming because this is already ridiculous enough. Yeah. Like, and I honestly just can't wait to see what other stupid things are going to be revealed in the future. Goudreau, until pretty recently, I'm not sure if he still maintains this, but he he said the operation was ongoing. So. Oh. Um, well, I'm, I'm not sure how how that would yeah be. um but who knows yeah so let's let's move on now to sort of discuss there's there's been changing discourse around the state of the economy um the coronavirus pandemic and and just i mean I think part of it is just people have been inside for a long time and they're chafing at the restrictions, which I, I don't blame anybody for for that. And I, I think part of it is just it, the situation has shifted a little bit in terms of the discourse to the extent that I think it's worth discussing it again. Um, and so just state of where we are, there are lots of states that are sort of doing different types of reopening mm-hmm. um and when i say reopening i don't mean they're opening up like a lot of stuff but they're starting to like get yeah, in the, the swing to, of it but public health officials seem to think that some of the ways the states do this might be in violation of like the public health principles that they're providing like the the guidelines that they provide and there was the cdc was going to release guidelines but that got nixed by the white house um and these guidelines would have you know suggested that the states not reopen Mm -hmm. um the guidelines were later leaked to the associated press but yeah I think it is interesting to have the discussion about where we are in this sort of situation um, and sort of frame it in like the, the reality of it. I, I think there's also um, I think it's also worth discussing some of the difficulties that there have been with communication. Um, on this, both from public health officials and from the press. Mm. Uh, and I, actually, I want to start out like the press and the role that maybe some of the mistakes that were made are playing into hysteria and like cries for reopening at a time where it's probably premature. Um, a lot of the way that this was reported on 
was done so like less than uh, they reported on this in a way that I don't think is suited to this sort of thing. Like framing a pandemic, like a, a big public health emergency and the economic fallout from that is all like very difficult to like perfectly forecast. Yeah. And starting back in January, I think the press should have been doing more probabilistic reporting. Um, and, and some outlets were, but generally most weren't. Mm-hmm. Like, essentially what should have been done is, um, you know, you frame it in terms of probably in January, I think, depending on who you ask, there was maybe a 5% chance of this becoming what it has. Um, But the reporting didn't really either reflect that. Like, either the reporting was very panicked in a way that reflected panic about, like, past outbreaks. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I was one of the people who looked at that and said... I mean, this looks like Ebola. Yeah, like, I I originally was like, oh, this is just going to be Ebola again. It's going to stay over there and nothing's going to happen. Yeah, and... Obviously, I was wrong, but... (laughs) Yeah, well... I think that part of that has to do with how those past things were reported on. Yeah. If you reported on those, like, and instead of the panicky headlines you said there is a you know five percent tail probability that this becomes like a global catastrophe then didn't become that in those cases people wouldn't have been like so definitively sure that it was you know overhyped or over this or over that Mm -hmm. and then in this case when it did become that you know Actually, I, I think the, the bigger issue, actually, is people just are not able to think probabilistically about things, and, and they don't want to structure policymaking to reflect that. Like, if you have a 5%, you could do any sort of gambling analogy that, like, shows what a good bet and a bad bet is, and essentially we apply those same principles to risks. Um, If there's a 5% risk of this, that doesn't mean that you should just ignore it because there's a 95% chance it won't happen. It means that reflecting the 5%, you should dedicate some resources to preparing for that tail probability or even better, reducing the probability further. Exactly. Which is what, what could have happened. Um, and I think if that did happen, we would be in a much better situation than we are at the we moment. We would be. We, I, think, I think we'd be on the track to reopening now if we had done something like that. But Well, I think it's actually a pretty bimodal distribution. Like, if, if say, back in January, 
um, the U.S. government, the Trump administration, had been more forceful in getting China to allow U.S. doctors to be on the ground in Wuhan, mm-hmm. which basically the Trump administration line on that was we trust Xi Jinping <laughs> was eminently dumb. Yeah. But um, I don't think China would have let our doctors in there anyways. Well, they, they, they basically were saying no, but I mean, you can essentially force public health experts in. Like, right, yeah. China is not like a completely closed off country in the way that North Korea is. Mm-hmm. It is a like a participant in the global economy. Yeah. And, you know, they have diplomatic things they want from us. So, like, you can essentially force inspectors onto the ground there to to try and ascertain what's going on and then that could have led to you know more political pressure pressure on the ccp to shut down wuhan earlier which i think the data pretty clearly shows could have prevented it from becoming a global pandemic Mm -hmm. Uh, obviously 99 percent of the responsibility there lies with the ccp and xi jinping um yeah but I, I also want to talk about, like, the mistakes that have been made since the lockdown. Because I feel like part of that is communication errors, and part of that is just a lack, the result of paralysis from the federal government. So, obviously, like, the initial rhetoric was, you know, flatten the curve, flatten the curve. And I think to a lot of people that meant shorter lockdowns certainly not lockdowns until we get a pandemic or i mean until we get a um a vaccine um but it's stretched longer than i think many people expected Mm -hmm. and part of the reason for that is that after initially shutting down there was fiscal stimulus that was passed and we'll talk about fiscal stimulus a little bit later, but there wasn't like broad creative actions taken by the federal government to make sure that we are able to, like there has to be action. Like the, the state that we find ourselves in right now is one where the reproduction number of the virus is pretty clearly around one or even above one. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty clearly above one. So what you have is cases are sort of plateauing. Mm-hmm. They're, they're decreasing nationally, but in a lot of other places, places other than New York, they're plateauing. Yeah. Because New York seems to have some effect from... Nate Silver was criticized by an epidemiologist on Twitter for using the phrase partial herd immunity because herd immunity refers to like total herd immunity but there is some effect on the reproduction number of portion of the population in new york's case about maybe 20 percent having antibodies like that slows down spread of the virus mm-hmm. but in other places it's sort of plateauing and you're seeing like day after day several thousand deaths a day and that's like obviously that is not an acceptable no equilibrium especially as we enter indefinite economic pain so people are talking about how mad glacius used the phrase he's a writer i like to read 
um, at Vox, he used the phrase, break the choice. Like, it's being framed in our discourse as like a choice between the economy and our health. But in, in reality, if we don't find some way to address this, those are both going to be harmed just catastrophically. Mm-hmm. And the mistake was not using the, like, we've been in lockdown for what, two months now? The mistake was not using that time. Like, I think you needed really, like, creative and groundbreaking action from the federal government, and you need it to be well coordinated. Like, right now, you have, like, states just bidding against each other for PPE. And it's like, I was listening to this piece on NPR last night about it's almost like a black market. Like there are just people who have decided to be PPE middlemen. And there are deals that are falling through millions of public dollars that are going missing. It's just this like terrible situation that could have been at least mitigated by having some central authority in charge of like, like a lot of people at the Pentagon have knowledge of like supply lines and just the basic strategic planning that goes into avoiding just chaos. Yeah. And, and I mean, furthermore, like what has to be done is implementing a testing and tracing operation and like central quarantine. Because right now we're testing a whole lot of or not a whole lot of people, but we're testing, like, a not abysmal amount of people, yeah. as we were a while ago. But to get to the point where you could essentially just beat the virus into the ground, which is what, to a certain extent, needs to be done, so that when we do reopen in, like, significant amounts, it doesn't surge back, is to find a way to isolate the cases and make sure that people who have been in contact with those cases are isolated as well. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are fearing that sort of second wave, basically, if we reopen too fast, is that if it's just going to come back and we're just going to be back in the same situation we were a few months ago. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that right now, the view from right here is that I think that I think some states are a little too early on it, mm. but I think that by June, a lot of states are going to be taking sort of moderate steps towards reopening. And, you know, I really halt to use the word reopening because it, it won't be. It'll be. It's more like a like very, very specific means- things are easing of restrictions like i'll be able to get my hair cut like that sort of thing Mm -hmm. it's not a total Um, reopening of everything and life's back to normal it's just a gradual yeah you can do this now you can do this now i think what will happen is come august come september we'll probably have to there will probably be more of a second wave Mm -hmm. partially because of the reopenings partially because of whatever seasonality the virus does have, which... And... This is something I struggle with, because there have been 
studies and they're like widely tweeted around articles that have some sort of like minute finding that say the the seasonality of the virus is like zero mm-hmm. or that um you don't get immunity after you have the virus like barely any immunity at all yeah and what i would say here is like like substantial proof for those things more for the immunity but to a lesser extent in terms of seasonality is on the people who who think it might not exist than on the people who think it 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 does exist to some extent because every like heuristic we have to like everything we know about comparable viruses tells us there's probably some degree of seasonality yeah and there's probably and, and there's almost certainly immunity conferred at least temporary immunity conferred by having the virus but i think another effect of just warmer weather is that people are outside more and another thing is i I think it's pretty clear that it's much harder for it to spread outside so i think you'll see outdoor activities maybe being more um allowed and then in september and august when you know people maybe have been doing stuff outside they come back inside but they're still socializing similar extent that's when you see another surge and that's when you see another round of lockdowns. But yeah. this is all conjecture, and there's so much uncertainty. Yeah, we, we don't really know what's actually going to happen because we don't have all the facts, and obviously everything's still just a prediction at this point. Which is another thing I think a lot of people have been struggling with, which is like the advice of you know public health officials and economists and sociologists, all, all of these people who have expertise that is relevant to understanding the situation that we're in is valuable but there's so much uncertainty that they're faced with a difficult choice like if a reporter calls them a quote that conveys the amount of uncertainty there is is not a powerful quote no so i think they're often quoted in ways that accomplish the like ob- objectives that we should be seeking to accomplish, but in a way that neglects the uncertainty that exists. Like there's a whole distribution of outcomes, and I, I think that the public would be well suited. Like people were able to familiarize themselves and like come to grips with the amount of uncertainty that exists in everything and then take the advice of public experts for what it is valuable advice but if they if they were able to give us that advice in ways that conveyed the uncertainty i think it would be even more valuable because it would be more accurate Mm -hmm. yeah um but now to talk a little bit about um the the fiscal response i think we're seeing like some really interesting stuff on that end i mean it's obviously horrifying the economic damage that's been inflicted but i think like pretty clearly the prescription here is just massive fiscal stimulus 
for when I say the foreseeable future, I'm not talking a multiple year horizon. I'm talking about maybe, but just massive fiscal stimulus, like yeah, trillions and like trillions the, like of the dollars. Next few months or something. Deficit financed, which <coughs> scares some people. I mean, this is what it it's for. Like, this is why you deficit spend we shouldn't be deficit spending necessarily in like we were running trillion dollar deficits while the economy was doing extremely well prior to this happening because we deficit spending um like there was still a deficit in the obama years um which they implemented some austerity measures but they were pretty mild once the economy got back on its feet after the great recession. But then the, the Trump administration pushed for the tax cuts or, I mean, those were probably more so Paul Ryan's tax cuts than Donald Trump's. Yeah. They were deficit finance. There were no pay for So you have a deficits that are, bigger than any we've seen before being run in the midst of pretty good economic expansions. And then this hits, and this is when you really need deficit spending. That being said, our national debt stands at about 100% of GDP, mm-hmm. which is terrible. Like that's not catastrophic. Um, the main concerns with national debt are, inflation and crowding out other public spending because it's expensive to pay interest on the debt that we accrue and a a good chunk of your tax dollars go towards doing so yeah Uh, and that leaves less money for other public spending but i don't think that there are necessarily huge consequences maybe a $5 trillion deficit this year is what's needed. It, it could be even more. I mean, right now, actually, there are fears of deflation uh, because prices are falling. And, and deflation would be really, really bad. And, and that's because of the collapse in demand. Mm-hmm. Um, well, some actually, so that's in conjunction with the collapse of demand. We've also seen supply chains hold up relatively well compared to what we were expecting, which does create, you know, price prices falling in a lot of things. Um, yeah. And I think that's the case. We're not really talking about monetary policy right now, but that is the case for the Federal Reserve taking the actions that they took, um, pulling out all of the stops, essentially, ejecting liquidity into all sorts of markets, doing essentially a round of quantitative easing, um, just taking all sorts of actions um, because really it it would behoove us to actually get inflation and certainly avoid deflation. Um, But that's also the the point of um, deficit spending. Like there are one of the arguments against deficit spending is against inflation. And I mean, (laughs) 
like in in this case we would like to have inflation be at least a decent bit higher like yeah i think that a lot of policymakers remember the 1970s quite well <laughs> we had like 14% inflation and that's that's cat- like that's terrible for the economy but it's yeah. also i think been the case that that's created this sort of fiscal hawk or this monetary hawkishness that's sort of permeated in circles mm-hmm. um through the the rest of the 20th century and into the 21st century and, and frankly we we hadn't been we have not been even hitting so the federal reserve targets inflation i think at about two percent and they weren't even hitting that for most of the past um couple of years yeah another thing that merits discussion is the distinction between um like how we to work this and i think this is a lesson Can you repeat that i i think another thing that bears mentioning is the discussion kind of like an intra um like this has been a discussion within more liberal circles for some time now but how you administer like how you're able to get money to people who need more of it it, it, it is the vassal way of putting it but mm-hmm. a way to think about this is like minimum increasing the minimum wage versus implementing some sort of negative income cash just or ne- negative income tax just cash transfers to people who need it um which is sort of what part of the first um stimulus bill was but I think right now it's pretty widely recognized that we should fall on the side of that debate that advocates for direct cash transfers. Or actually, I feel like I framed that really. There's those who would like to, and I'm speaking in terms of the non-coronavirus. Yeah. Like there are those who would like to raise the minimum wage mm-hmm. in order to get more money into the pockets of people who need it. Who would like to expand the earned income tax credit to get more pockets into the to get more money into the pockets of people who need it. And the distinction there is that with minimum wage, it's the burden is being born specifically by businesses Mm -hmm. whereas with the earned income tax credit it's born by society as a whole and the reason you do that is so you don't cause economic damage Mm -hmm. i think right now in coordinating the response we're actually coming down pretty well on the right side of that in terms of there's not these mandates that are being given to businesses to um, 
although there is some discussion of that. Like, one of the discussions is paid sick leave. And there's a lot of pressure on businesses to provide paid sick leave. And some Democrats are proposing that mandates be put in place so that businesses are forced to do so. But that's, like, not a very good idea, considering the fact that, that would probably cause more businesses to go under and less workers would be able to get their job back, their jobs back when the economy reopens versus this being a deficit-financed federal government program. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, I think I went on a little too long about that. But the one final thing I want to say it's also pretty clear that you need direct federal to state and local governments mm-hmm. given that like the state of Illinois, which is where we live cannot, yeah. it, it does not have its own central bank in the sense that it, or it doesn't have like its own currency. It does not have like control over its sole economy in the way that the United States government does. So, when states are deeply in debt and when localities are deeply in debt, that is a problem of the scope much larger than when the federal government is in debt. Mm-hmm. So the in that case, just to states and localities. Can you repeat that? Provide aid to states and localities. All right. If there's not any, do you want to talk about a little bit your take on that? Um, we can wrap I, I, I think, I think you've honestly covered it. You went, you went pretty in depth and, uh, it was yeah, a pretty good explanation. No, 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 no. It was, it was, it was a pretty good explanation on everything. Okay. So I think that's it for this episode of foreign and domestic. And we'll be back out with another one. That's right. I'm, I'm point, Jake. Probably. <laughs> And I'm Will. And we'll see you in the next one. Everybody seen my old friend Bill. Long-headed feel.